are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up this evening again with hypothesis number 40. And we are on page 345, halfway down the page with the paragraph beginning, The Abbot and the Brothers. And if you remember, we've been discussing the importance of stability, uh, fostering both external and internal stability, maintaining a kind of peace of mind and heart, and uh, being cautious in particular about making changes in one's life, uh, of moving towards something that we, from our own judgment, uh, might see as being potentially more fruitful spiritually for us. And for the monks in particular, the danger was always being uh, drawn to the opposite of the life that they had embraced. So those living the common life in a community uh, sometimes could feel the greater attraction to the anchoritic life, the life of solitude. And so, as we mentioned last time, it's the sort of the idea of the grass is always greener on the other side. And yet this can be used against us in the spiritual life uh, to move away from the difficulties of our station in life and the things that we find challenging and uh, both on an emotional level and spiritual level. And whereas this can really be uh, something that can be deeply formative for us spiritually, uh, it can be the place where we are sanctified by struggling day in and day out uh, with our own weaknesses, uh, our own impatience, or struggling with the personalities of others, and to remain charitable and compassionate and generous. And, uh, and so what is being put forward to us again here this evening is uh, the particular uh, temptations and ideas that the evil one will put before us, uh, the times that we sometimes we are tempted to make changes in our life, uh, old age. Uh, I think uh, in our culture, it's often middle age, you know, the middle age crisis kind of thing of, you know, looking for something that would offer greater fulfillment. And having one's eye drawn to something uh, different from one's own commitment or again, station in life and making a quick, quick decision or one that's rooted only uh, in emotion. Uh, and not that emotion is not uh, uh, something that guides and directs us or speaks a kind of truth to us. It does. It's part of uh, I think our life as human beings and often our feelings about things, especially, uh, for example, when we experience anger, often it can be in the face of injustice and, uh, and call for a specific response. But we want to always look at these things with a great kind of clarity and discernment. And sometimes we can't do that if we are in a state of desolation uh, and our, our vision is clouded in one way or another. And so we're going to see here tonight the, our, the thoughts that go through our minds, as well as the temptations that are put before us and the remedies, I think, that the fathers suggest for us whenever we are drawn strongly in one direction, how to put things to the test. So again, page 345, the abbot and the brothers of the Snobium will gratefully welcome the brother who returns in this way to the community because the Lord said, support the weak. But if out of shame, this brother does not return to his community, there is nothing to prevent him from giving credence to the demons and returning to the world. 
in the world too, the demons tell him, if you are willing to fear God, you will be saved. Or do you perhaps think that only hermits are saved? These are the ideas that the devil proffers in his endeavor to persuade the monk to return to his own vomit. And so sometimes uh, an individual, this follows up on in the previous paragraphs on uh, a monk being drawn away from his community and then coming to his senses or coming to a greater clarity and having the uh, thought of returning uh, to his commitment and to the common life. And yet the evil one will continue to tempt him away from it, that either he will be shamed in going back to that community and rejected by them uh, as being weak uh, rather than embraced, or uh, the devil will uh, tempt him simply to enter, go back to the world altogether, uh, to leave the religious life and to put before uh, him the notion that, you know, anyone can be saved wherever they are, which is true. I, I don't think, you know, he'll, the evil one will use certain truths, but in a particular way uh, to guide and direct us off of the path that we're set upon. And so certainly putting something like this before us can give us a kind of ease and make us back off of the kind of discernment that is needed during these periods of trial. And this is where we have to be very, again, uh, we have to be very careful uh, because when our vision gets clouded and when we've been undergoing trial for a long period of time, uh, it's important that we seek counsel, that we are engaged in deep prayer, fasting, seeking to strengthen us ourselves with all the resources possible uh, before any kind of change might be made. All of these things happen to one who has been separate, who has separated himself from the synovium if he goes into the desert. If again he goes to settle in a cell near the elders, the elders will take care of him for the Lord's sake, bringing him whatever they can. But when the brother has installed himself in his cell, he begins to think we must work in order to provide a livelihood. And so if uh, an individual does make that step and move to the life of greater solitude, uh, monks would often live within some proximity of, of, of each other. And, uh, and so what the author is saying here is that they'll come to his aid and help him get established in the life. Uh, but then the realization hits home that these men too have to engage in a kind of work in order to support themselves in this life. They have to do everything necessary to provide for their daily uh, needs, for their meals, gathering water for themselves. Uh, and so it's not uh, a life where others are going to be taking part of the responsibility for the duties uh, as one would see within uh, a synobium in a monastery. And uh, so if they leave thinking that they're going to find a life of greater peace, uh, less distraction, less focus upon the, the menial or daily work of, a, a, of the monastic life by living in solitude, they're uh, struggling with a delusion that every life carries with it certain labors and responsibilities and obligations to provide for oneself. And... Uh, and so he can awaken at this point, as they say, uh, we must work here in order to provide for our livelihood. He then begins to be bothered with many things so that he may live completely alone. For just as the synobium appears difficult to one who is used to living by himself, so also solitude causes great and tolerable distress to one who is used to the common life. Afflicted by temptations and distraction, he begins to repent and say, look here, I'm occupied with so many matters that I cannot even find even a short period of time in which to do my role of prayer. Contending as I do with everyday cares, the thoughts arising from them and work. But when I lived in the synovium, I was free from all these things. I devoted my concern entirely to my role and my small amount of handiwork. And so... 
you know, the, the number of men in a monastery helps make, in a sense, the, the, uh, the work lighter, that it can be divided and allows one to be attentive to studies or to a life of prayer. But all of a sudden, when you're having to patch your own roof or go out and, you know, digging for roots to eat, or again, walking five miles, you know, with pitchers to, for your water, then you realize, oh my gosh, you know, that this is a difficult level. Uh, and even if I'm attracted to the solitary life, uh, the, the labor to maintain it and sustain it is not something that I'm necessarily attracted to. And so it's, you know, it draws the mind back, I think, uh, where Christ teaches us to count the cost. You know, if you're going into battle, uh, you know, and you have a, an army of 5,000 going up against 10,000, then perhaps you would, you know, uh, uh, tr try to engage in uh, some negotiations so that you don't have to go to go to war. Uh, or if you're building a, a tower or something along those lines, you want to make sure that you have all the necessary materials. Others, otherwise, people will mock you or laugh at you because you started to build without making sure that you had what was necessary. And uh, and so similarly here, you know, we're we're born. Oops, I'm sorry. Uh, we are warned uh, that what we have to consider well what it is that we're thinking about doing and to discern whether or not we have the personal wherewithal uh, to engage in that life and engage in it fully. Uh, and now he, he says, what, what am I in my misfortune to do? All these things have happened to me because of my sins. If I had listened to the advice of my spiritual father, I would not have fallen into so many great afflictions which have taken me captive. Truly, there is nothing more pernicious than disobedience. For it was disobedience that cast Adam out of paradise and me from my synobium. After these thoughts, the repentant brother will either return to his community or perhaps go back to the world in which case he will perish. If he returns to his community and they accept him back, then if he is beset by thoughts about scandals and the outcry against him, let him say to himself, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth and turn away mine eyes that I behold not vanity. With these thoughts, you will overcome both problems, the outcry through silence, and the scandals through guarding the eyes. For if we do not overcome these two problems, the outcry and the scandals, wherever we may go, we will carry our adversaries inside of our souls. And so again, the, the real desert is within the heart and the real battle is fought and either won or lost there. And uh, this weekend in our, our group on the, uh, Beginner's introduction to the Philoclea, we finished the final chapter of it, which was descending uh, from the mind into the heart through prayer. And one of the uh, fathers, I think it was Isaac the Syrian, said that the latter is actually within the heart, that we are to descend within, and it's there that we make our ascent, that the kingdom of God lies within us, God is within us. And this is where the battle is, is waged. And so it was an interesting way uh, that Isaac allows us then to look back at John Climacus and this image of the ladder of divine ascent, not to externalize it, but rather to see it as being waged most of all within, within the heart in the deepest regions of ourselves as hum human beings. And uh, I think one of the things that the evil one seeks to do is to, uh, to get us to externalize that battle, to project it onto other individuals, to places, to things that we are struggling with in our day-to-day -day life, rather than to keep our, our, ourselves focused on what is going on within us in the struggle with the thoughts, with temptations, or the struggle with passions that have become deeply rooted, 
or the struggle to develop uh, a constancy in one's prayer and other ascetical disciplines. This is the, the desert, and this is where the battles to be fought. And uh, we can see from these little stories that it doesn't take much, I think, to, to drive us uh, to externalize things in such a way and um, to look outside of us for peace of mind and heart rather than to look within. Any comments on this section at all? Anything that we've looked at? Okay, number six on page 346. When the evil one wants to snatch yet another brother away from the monastery, he will put different thoughts in his mind saying to him, look, your disorderly conduct is well known here and all the brothers are aware of your negligence. This is why you cannot live any longer in this place. For even if you yearn for virtue, the men with whom you live are the very ones who know what kind of person you have been from the beginning. Go somewhere else where people do not know you and make a new start in the spiritual life. And in this way, you will be pleasing to God and to men. So escape to a different place where you're not known. And uh, this is, again, one of the dangers of this constant movement. Uh, one of the, the names that they gave to these monks that moved from monastery to monastery, just roamed, were, I think, gyrobags or gyrobags, that they would move from monastery to monastery and rely upon the hospital, I'm, I'm sorry, the hospitality that was offered to them but they were always uh, judged harshly in that regard because of the instability there. And when we move from place to place with ease and with frequency, that we are often not going very deep in the spiritual life, or we're trying to escape uh, from the deeper reality of our poverty by placing ourselves in an environment that where, as the author says here, nobody knows us. And we can pretend that we are beginning anew, when in reality, we take the same person with, with us, we take the same adversaries with us in this spiritual life. And, uh, and we will soon be discovered for who we are, in any case, uh, no matter where we do go. Uh, and so there's a kind of danger with that. But it's, it's good to know that, you know, right from the beginning, of the monastic life, there was this kind of struggle, that this isn't a modern phenomenon, uh, this kind of instability uh, that we have. I think some, some aspects of our life and culture demanded of us, you know, with jobs, people moving from place to place, there's almost kind of built-in instability now uh, within the culture because of the demands of work and things such as that. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, I think in any life and in any generation, there is this kind of instability of heart and where we want to hide from the truth or where, again, we want to externalize it. It's much more difficult to humbly acknowledge the truth about ourselves, our own subtle weaknesses, our own uh, lack of fortitude when it comes to not just dealing with our weaknesses, but the weaknesses of others. And the humbly, humbling experience of being known. And, you know, think about the most intimate relationship of all, of, you know, marriage. Uh, who knows uh, one better than one spouse, you know, and all the little things about their character and behaviors. And, uh, you know, often we will want to escape that uh, individuals will want to escape that or it'll be magnified to such an extent uh, that it becomes something that seems uh, that it makes life so unpleasant that it's unlivable. Whereas if one is able to look at those things through the eyes of the virtue that's being put before us here, of the stability, then those very things, even the weaknesses of others and our own weaknesses, 
can be things that become endearing or bind us to each other simply by enduring each other over the course of years. Uh, I, Father Drew Morgan and I were great friends for over, you know, for many years, over 40 years. And there were periods where we hated each other. <laughs> we were just so different in, in character, you know, just different likes and dislikes, different ways that we approached the spiritual life. And uh, so there were periods where we sort of got into, you know, fisticuffs, if you will, and uh, not literally, but uh, uh, it got tough. But then over a course of time, when you see that uh, when those things become known, but you also see this person has been willing to suffer for that which is good for the community or has loved the community that they've made enormous sacrifices. And, uh, and then a kind of respect and admiration begins to grow. And the little picadillos, the oddities of character become things of laughter that you could laugh about with each other. And I imagine the same is true in, in marriages that, you know, over the course of time, you know, you suffer through all these things together, you know, and the, you know, the raising of children or illness or loss of jobs, all these different kinds of things. And, uh, and then suffer through each other and each other's weaknesses. But there's a point in the relationship where the, the, the defenses drop and all those things, good and bad, and all the things from the past are precisely what bind uh, couples together. They, they become the things that create the intimacy. Uh, and uh, maybe we do a terrible job, perhaps, in preparing couples uh, for marriage in that regard and preparing you know, men for the, the priesthood or the religious life. Uh, that these things are often difficult to see or to imagine as emerging over the course of time. And often we don't have the, the examples of, of it too. Uh, I think in my previous community, one of the things that we struggled with the most was not having elders. You know, when you have elders within a community, you know, whether it's in a family, grandparents, or in a religious community, elders who are in their 80s and have seen everything under the sun, have gone through every crisis, have seen scandals and had people come and go. They're, they're the ones who are, that are the pillars and the moorings of a community or a family in the case, in the case of elders within, within a family, the grandparents. And they're the ones who can offer the words of wisdom and calm and peace as uh, families might be going through trials. And so what's being said here, I think, is something that we can apply to our day-to-day -day life and sometimes moment-to-moment. -moment. There can be this shifting and unsettledness within, unsettledness within us that uh, plays out you know, from day-to-day, -day, from hour-to-hour that we are, aren't often conscious of. Now listen, brother, are you going to leave your spiritual father and brothers in whose presence you made your monastic promises to God because of derision on the part of men? You should call the mind to mind the words of the prophet. My soul hath expected reproach and misery, and because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. When you reflect on these words of the prophet, you will also endure dishonor and contempt with joy. For the Lord says in the Beatitudes, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. The derision which a man withstands for this Lord's sake contributes greatly to the cleansing of that man's sins. Let the prophet persuade you regarding the truth of this with his words. For the Lord remembered us in our low estate and hath redeemed us from our enemies. So the author here puts forward before us the words of the Lord and the many other things from the scriptures 
that point us in this direction, that there is something about the sufferings that we endure in life that do shape our virtues and perfect them. And we talked a little bit about this in, in regards to what Paul said of Christ himself. Uh, through his suffering, he was made perfect. That there was something about the perfection of that love of Christ that becomes uh, apparent to the world, is opened up to the gaze of the world when he is stretched out upon the cross. Uh, when, you know, to the eyes of so many, he, at that point, he was a failure, a criminal, a blasphemer. Uh, uh, in reality, it's at that moment that his love shines forth in the most powerful way and is most redeeming. And so we're always you know, drawn back to Christ in particular as the model for us. Now, uh, you know, I know it's hard in hearing this, and there, the fathers do uh, speak of those occasions where, you know, th there are instances where one might have to change one's environment, uh, where there's something truly destructive there. And so they, they do get to that. But I, I think the greater challenge for us is uh, by their emphasis here uh, is uh, in our tendency towards the instability. Uh, and so that's where we have to be most guarded. Furthermore, do what is good, and you will see that the Lord will unfailingly turn the attitude of your brothers towards you to the good. Remain firm in the place where the enemy attacks you and stand straight and fight him so that your accomplishments may be revealed before those who are familiar with your shortcomings. And this way you will receive great glory from our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, but many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. In other words, when a soiled garment is washed, it will no longer be set aside with the dirty ones. If anyone out of envy or evil jealousy calls what is clean dirty, he will have no credence for the appearance of the garment will contradict him. As well known as is, as a well-known and beautiful verse says, thou shalt wash me and I shall be made whiter than snow. And so there is a kind of cleansing and perfecting that is being put forward here through what is suffered. But we're given a little insight into what will be explained further on. Uh, if anyone out of envy or evil jealousy calls what is clean dirty. And we, we see that within the Gospels where uh, the scribes and the Pharisees attribute uh, what is from God to the evil one. And so when Christ heals somebody or heals them on the Sabbath day, they attribute what he has done to the work of Beelzebul, to the work of the devil himself. And so in their pride, in their jealousy, in their envy, uh, they become so blind that they can no longer see what is good, even when it is directly before them. And this is what can be truly destructive. And I think we see Christ uh, acknowledging that, even to the point of call calling them whitewashed tombs. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this in a previous group that uh, to come into contact with a dead body was to be made, made ritually unclean. And so one would not be able to enter into the synagogue would, in a sense, uh, until they were purified, be excommunicated from the community of prayer. And so one of the practices of that time would be to whitewash tombs. So nobody uh, unawares would step upon a tomb or come upon a dead body. They would be marked out. So the hillsides would often be marked by these whitewashed tombs so people as they traveled could avoid them. And so Christ was basically telling people, scribes and the Pharisees are whitewashed tombs, even to come into contact with them because of this envy of this pride is to make oneself unclean. And you can understand why they became uh, kind of angry <laughs> towards him when he said this about them. Uh, because at that point, I think he, he could no longer hold back in, in the sense of trying to penetrate the pride 
there had that had blinded them uh that they had you know been looking for ways to accuse him looking for ways to undermine him in the eyes of the people to trip him up in his words and so envy there had reached uh, an ex uh, a point where they wanted to just to destroy him they wanted to put him to death and uh and so we see him at those points often moving on to another town or quickly moving away to escape their grasp uh, before they would do him harm. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Number seven. To one who has reached old age in a synobium, the enemy of our souls frequently inspires the thought of leaving and says, You've spent so many years in the monastery serving Christ, but now you have grown old and you can no longer fulfill the rules of the community. You do not even have the ability to do anything because your body has become weak. From now on, you will be humiliated both by both small and great. Moreover, you need respite on account of your old age. <laughs> so it's, you know, it come into our mind, well, 30 years and out, or what is the military is 20 years and out uh, to retirement. And so, you know, one can get to the point in religious life or any station of life, really say, you know, I've, I've put in my time, you know, I've, I've labored and uh, I'm physically, emotionally and spiritually spent. And so I need a respite from this. And, uh, and you could see, you know, even one's uh, physical inability to do the work any longer, or perhaps to keep uh, the, the same prayer role as the rest of the community might be humbling to uh, a monk who's been doing it all of his life. And I visited a Trappist monastery, and one of the first things that struck me was seeing at 2.30 vigils, an elderly monk coming with a walker you know, one of those four-legged walkers, four-legged walkers into the chapel for vigils at 2.30 in the morning. And, you know, at that point, I thought, you know, here I was a young man. I was like, I forget how old at that point, 19 or 20. And there was something humbling about that, seeing this aged monk. But the, the temptation can be, as we hear, uh, every great is, every bit is difficult for even the most experienced monk. And I think this is a warning to us all, you know, whatever life we've been engaged in and whatever the nature of our commitments, that we can be tempted against them in one way or another. And here, even our old age or feebleness, you know, this sense of not being able to do anything of worth, uh, uh, you know, as one might see it, uh, can be enough to make one call into question their life. Depart from here, therefore, and live in another place so that you may be at peace. God will send you food there, either through the charity of Christians or through some other means. For why should you have to undergo torment and mockery in order to eat? And why should you eat just to be harassed every day in this way, like the wicked servant, and put up with submitting to those who are younger than you. These and other such thoughts does the evil one suggest to the older monk and his desire to separate him after so many years from the brotherhood in the place where he has grown old and to show him in his old age to be a man without patience. If the old man happens to be feeble in mind, he will immediately change his mind and the temptation will cause him to act just as a breeze fans a fire of burning wood. And so if also age has had an effect upon the clarity of his thought, then he can become easy fodder as it were uh, for the attacks of the evil one and be driven away uh, from you know, what is a source of protection for him in this spiritual life. If, however, the old man proves to be sound in mind, then he will be, he will conquer Satan. You will not delude me in my old age, O devil, he will tell the evil one. For after, after patiently enduring difficulties when I was young, 
all the more will I endure them now that the time is approaching when through my bodily death, I will be with Christ. For an old man awaits nothing other than the liberation from this earthly life. And for those who are younger, I ought to be an example, not of impatience, but of patience. If the pious elder Eleazar, although he was subject to such torments and his members were burned, did not change his mind, but became an example of patience for the young, who looked to him and who themselves valiantly despised the tortures of the tyrants, all the more should I endure, since I indeed am not suffering any of those torments. So being called to patience, but also to be an example of patience. Uh, and again, this is you know what I was talking about a little earlier, you know, a community that lacks elders can lose its way, the whole community can lose its way and have a difficult time emerging from a kind of immaturity that plagues it. Uh, that uh, if there's this instability that's uh, present from its inception, then it's very difficult for a community to work through that. And so this is why you'll find a lot of, when a lot of communities are formed uh, in a new way and emerge that sometimes they can come to nothing rather quickly. And uh, whereas, you know, the Benedictines have, you know, endured throughout, throughout the centuries and some others, you know, they've stood the test of time. And so has the genius and the saintliness of their founders. Uh, but, you know, every good idea and every new community is not necessarily going to have the means, even if God does provide grace, it's not necessarily going to have the means to survive, especially if not rooted, I think, in the wisdom that is put forward here for us today. Any comments? Ren, you look puzzled. Do you have a thought? Go ahead, spit it out. Okay, here, here's one. Something about all these examples makes me really sad. I think it has something to do with my, with how they show that our words and actions can have such a profound uh, effect on the ability of another to resist temptation. And all these examples, the temptations would have little weight if the elder in question was treated in such a way that he was assured of the affection and support of his fellow younger monks. Absolutely. Uh, and this is something that often is not put forward in communities or uh, put forward to couples that are approaching marriage, that you are responsible for the fidelity of the other as much as you are responsible for your own fidelity to the vocation. And that means that your prayer is not seen as something uh, in individualistic or that you're engaging in the spiritual life or the common life or in marriage, again, doesn't become this sort of self-focused uh, pursuit that you are responsible on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis in helping others persevere in that vocation by supporting them, showing them affection, praying for them, being attentive to your own passions and so that you aren't presenting them with a crippling cross or putting before them a temptation that would lead them away from their community. And so I think part of our struggle is that we lose sight of this radical solidarity that exists between us as, as human beings and as certainly as Christians. Uh, that are bound together by virtue of ba our baptism and the Holy Eucharist, that we are to care for one another and uplift each other in, in the spiritual battle. And sometimes the opposite can begin to emerge, that there can, cliques can begin to, for example, begin to emerge in communities or uh, gossip, uh, a kind of mean-spiritedness, uh, emotional manipulation, uh, the struggle to gain positions of emotional power in order to control 
the 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 direction of the community and such things can exist even on in a more intimate level within uh say the marriage relationship that rather than a mutual respect or what we hear from paul this kind of mutual obedience that you know that the spouses uh commit are committed to offer each other and in, in the sense that they uh, are attentive to and hear uh, what the other is saying, and that they are seeking to strengthen and uplift the other. Uh, when that when that breaks down and it turns again into this kind of maneuvering for emotional power, then it can be a very, the the most lonely of lives, in in the sense of feeling isolated when that that relationship begins to break down because you know if it's in a religious community you know there are often a lot of members of the community where one can find support or encouragement or even if a priest is on his own you know there's sort of the priestly identity and that function you know on a day-to-day -day basis and you know that holds its own trials and struggles too but i, I think if you're in a relationship uh where you know, th that kind of love and respect and fidelity to the other is broken down. And there isn't uh, a respect for the preciousness of that relationship, and one takes it for granted, then you are responsible, you know, for them. In the same way that the spiritual elder is responsible for the care uh, for those under his care. You know, they are to learn obedience through his example, through his own obedience and commitment to the life. And, you know, they're not there to be bossed around by him or infantilized. And so if he mistreats them or if he fails to form them in a way that they can persevere, he's responsible for uh, living up to the charge that was laid upon him, the responsibility for their care. I just imagine, she continues, Ren continues, uh, how the way we treat others makes them more or less susceptible, right? I think so. We, we, we can be the cause of others becoming vulnerable to spiritual attacks in a multitude of ways. And so we, we can never lose sight of the other. And our spiritual life cannot become this thing that is done in solitude, like even the hermit, the anchorite must love all. He must love the world and everyone within it. There, the, you know, that it would be only be an individual who's been trained in this life, uh, that it would have the capacity to really enter into the anchoritic life because it's not meant to be an, an escape from the world. It's meant to be an embrace of the world in a much broader way, as well as an, a deeper entering into the spiritual battle. And uh, that'll come up you know, uh, later on, but there's a real danger then for a person entering into the life of solitude without having this kind of understanding. Any other thoughts or comments? Okay. Uh, where do I leave off? If somebody could help me out here. Are we at St. Maximus or is the paragraph above? Uh, if I endure, okay. If I endure a little bother and the slightest disdain, I will not be an example of apostasy for the young, but of patience and steadfastness. For I think of myself as a slave whom my Lord brought and entrusted to the abbot of the monastery in which I live. And because of this, it is not in my power to leave whenever I wish. Why do you afflict me, you evil thoughts, even over my small handiwork? If people in the world labor with great gusto, not only day, not only by day, but also by night, for the perishable goods of this world, and concern themselves with wives, children, accommodations, and rent, and undergo so many hardships, all the more should I joyfully endure my small toil, since indeed I have been freed from all these anxieties by the grace of Christ. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
For this reason, depart from me, ye evildoers, and I will search out the commandments of my God. And this way, with the aid of divine grace, he will persevere in his original purpose and will be made perfect in the place where he grew old. And thus he will win an unfading glory. Uh, Ren has a follow-up comment here. I'm thinking, I don't think this is an overstatement that when we treat others in a way that says you are worthless, you are not worth my time, you don't deserve kindness, you are a lost cause, and many other such things that we are not just making them more susceptible to temptations of the demons, but are in fact becoming the tempting demon ourselves. We are already doing the demon's job for them. Uh, absolutely. And again, we see the fathers talk about this, that uh, we can become demons by embracing their way of act, acting. And uh, they're, you know, I think, again, the idea here of, of making others susceptible to, uh, you know, not, not only leaving a particular way of life, but susceptible to despair and hope in God, faith in God, that, uh, you know, if you, if you think about, you know, those who, just if we use the most extreme example, perhaps, uh, you know, those who are abused by clergy and the destruction there of an individual, individual's faith or hope in God, uh, or someone who's abused by, you know, a grandparent or a parent uh, physically or sexually, that, you know, they are, can be so deeply scarred that they develop a kind of self-hatred uh, or abused here, as you say, in, you know, in verbal ways, you are worthless, you know, that and a person can grow up with this, you know, internalized sense that they are not worth being respected, not worth being treated well. And so this is why things will perpetuate them, themselves generationally, that if you come from an abused family or, or you're treated with this kind of indignity, then uh, it's, you know, it can flow down to one's, you know, uh, siblings and then into one's own relationships if you get married. Uh, and perpetuate itself generation after generation, unless uh, someone, by the grace of God, is able to rise above that, to disconnect themselves from that, or comes into contact with uh, with God, you know, either through others or through the life of prayer, where they are shown respect and tenderness and love and compassion in such a way that even the deepest and oldest of wounds can be, be healed. So I, I understand what you're saying, that when we read this, we and I think that's why I've repeatedly you know, brought up that there are circumstances where one would leave. I think in our day-to-day -day life, it's just that there can be this kind of fickleness of mind and heart that leads us to a kind of unsteadiness uh, in regards to our desires. Uh, but I, I think where we could broaden out what the fathers didn't face uh, is this kind of uh, long-term and intergenerational, you know, abuse that can exist that really diminishes a person's self-image uh, and their, you know, capacity to see themselves as lovable. And certainly as a priest over the course of 30 years, I've talked to dozens upon dozens of people who've had exactly this experience in one form or, or another. And uh, it's interesting, you know, at times, you know, I, I know therapists experience this and, but priests experience it often too, is that sometimes you're put to the test by individuals to see if you're going to say, get, you know, get away from me, you know, or, you know, or I can't tolerate, you know, what's going on with you, your disorder, you know, and, uh, and so sometimes people can come forward and have this really, their defenses are up and they can speak roughly or harshly to you as a priest 
and be, you know, direct a lot of anger towards you. And if, if you don't realize that you, you have to suspend judgment with everyone that you meet and focus on listening to what they're saying or not saying or how they're acting and why, then you might not pick up all any of those things. You might do exactly what they expect you to do, which is to walk away. I wash my hands of this. I cannot help you. Uh, you need to get professional help, whatever it might be, which might be true. But uh, uh, nonetheless, we, you know, a priest is often, you know, a person's last uh, uh, point of seeking support and help. Uh, and so of all places, they, they have to be met with a kind of compassion and patience. And I tell you what, seminary does not prepare you for that. And it's not because it doesn't give us psychology classes, although that would be immensely helpful. Uh, I think uh, it's because we aren't often exposed to all the things that we're reading about here. You know, how subtle the workings of the human mind and heart can be, but also how deep the wounds that we bear can be as well, and that others can, can, can you know, often bear. Louise writes, Sometimes to be ethical, we have to confront directly or indirectly the obvious incompetence and even maliciousness of others. Of course, their hidden demons come out then forcibly. This would not be a sin, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the, what comes forward, I saw, I'm sorry, Anthony, I missed your comment. I'll get to it here in a moment. Uh, but uh, Absolutely, that's true. And I think we see Christ himself doing it. And whenever there is envy, especially that there hold on feedback. Um, wherever there is envy, there is often this destructive element as well, that uh, individuals will want to destroy what seems to be getting in the way of their getting what they want or experiencing what they want from others or from the world around them. And so if they can't have it, no one can have it. And, uh, and you know, the scribes and the Pharisees reached that level, of course, you know, in wanting to destroy Christ, but that can exist within relationships or communities uh, where there is, as you said here, incompetence or maliciousness. And believe me, within communities or in relationships, there can be the deepest kind of malice and where you know, we have the capacity as human beings of justifying it in our minds. And this is where we get back to Ren's point of becoming you know, like a demon, that the malice can be so great that that is who we are imitating in the way that we are engaging the others. And there are a whole lot of things that can make us feel that we are absolutely justified in doing that. Make us think we are protecting something, you know, of value. And, and yet it turns into something incredibly ugly. Anthony wrote, the Three Musketeers has a plot line about a woman who left the convent in a bad way and she brought ruin and misery to several men throughout her life until an avenger caught up with her. It ties together some themes discussed today. Right, you know, again, we take with us, you know, our own hearts. And so, you know, if there are flaws there, you know, lack of love, lack of fidelity, then we can bring that into the lives of others and bring great destruction, just as what we were talking about here uh, with, with malice. And then John Ingram wrote, I think St. Francis de Sales talked about how to respond to negative people, heretics, etc. Treat them with honey, not with vinegar. Yes, you know, I think, you know, it's important for us, you know, on a spiritual level to uh, have control of our passions and in particular uh, anger, to withhold judgment, even of the one, as we're being taught here, who's directly 
attacking us in some form or another. And to try to see where there is, there are inroads to bringing about healing or uh, to reestablish some connection. And so this is why, again, one's thoughts have to be put to the test and one can see one's own participation and the breakdown of relationships. And so with patients can seek to try to rebuild them and to try to respond, as you say here, with honey rather than vinegar. Uh, but there also can be uh, incredible disorder and, uh, you know, within communities that, you know, certainly are contrary uh, to a, every ethical and moral standard. And at that point, I think when it becomes a danger, I mean, one of the reasons, and uh, we'll have to wrap it up before too long, uh, one of the reasons, a couple of the reasons are envy, uh, but also where the place is a potential uh, haven of sin for you. And so if you're living in a community or among others where you are going to be constantly exposed to something that's a temptation or be or you're, you become the focal point of their vice, then, you know, being able to consciously and freely uh, step away from that, there is legitimate self-interest and we don't want to lose sight of that in our, our life. Uh, you know, we are called to love and to love heroically, even to the point of making great sacrifices. But uh, I think where we also see, you know, great sickness and abuse on so many different levels, that we, we, we have to be careful. And uh, a number of people have emailed me about this, you know, the, the, in regards to the way that the fathers articulate things. The, the, the need to nuance certain teachings, to take into consideration certain realities in life that people face, where simply embracing that wisdom could be harmful to them. And I agree with that, you know, because there are the times where I've been swept up in the beauty of what is being said here by the fathers, where I will overgeneralize myself. You know, in terms of what the fathers are saying, I'll be too sweeping and uh, without making any modification or a clarification. And, you know, not on purpose, but sometimes that happens. And I think, again, it's good that we are able to discuss these things within a group because it does allow us to flesh out these readings in a way that we might not be able to do on our own. Uh, Louise said, good point. However, some people even envy you when you treat them with honey is because they do not have honey and they hate you for having honey. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, so, and I, I think that reveals itself over the course of time. You know, when uh, there is a kind of uh, attempt at rational engagement or love or generosity to show generosity, and uh, virtue can become something that people resent. And so even treating them with a kind of respect and not responding. Uh, you know, if you've ever had a person yell at you for uh, always being so calm about things that are being discussed, then you understand exactly Louise's point here that you can be despised or uh, become, or at least become a source of frustration for one who perhaps is easily moved to, to histrionics about even the smallest of things. And, uh, and so, right, I agree with you here, uh, that there are a lot of different ways that we could look at this. So this, this brings us to 830, and we'll be at St. Uh, Maximus next time, uh, but good work tonight. I mean, I love it when we're able to sort of pull things apart in this fashion and uh, go into a deeper, deeper reading of it. Because it doesn't, you know, I think the, the greater truth that we're able to see through the text does not diminish in any way or seeing these aspects that we need to consider doesn't diminish the wisdom 
that the fathers are putting forward. It's just saying, okay, we, we need to do our work as well in, in the sense of thinking these things through in a discerning and discriminating fashion. And that's the purpose of a, a group like this to do exactly that. Okay, so thank you again uh, for all your questions and comments tonight. And why don't we close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.